Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. We have made it to a Friday. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Streaming online at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Scott Rippey. Brian Haydad will join us a little bit later this afternoon from Omaha. Press conference day at the College World Series. It all gets started tomorrow. Mississippi State will play in the fourth game of the opening round. That is on Sunday night. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Online at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. If you've got land financing needs of any kind, Mississippi Land Bank can help. They've been financing land and all that goes with it for over 100 years. Mississippi Land Bank. The website is mslandbank.com. Happy Friday, boys. I don't know if your day's as good as Matt Kuchar's is. He just holed out for Eagle on his last hole of the day to uh, get to four under for the uh, the championship, the U.S. Open. Tiger Woods has a putt for par on the eighth hole. He is one under on his round, two under for the tournament, but he is pretty, he's going to drop a shot at uh, number eight, which is his 17th on the day. Forky, what's up? I had a very dad moment with Rippy earlier. Uh, okay. He comes in and says, you know, what are you going to do this weekend? And I, I just listed off my yard work that I'm going to be doing all weekend and nothing more. And we're only a few years apart. And I think he was asking me, like, hey, are you going to go to the bar? What are you going to do this weekend? Like, you got any big plans? And my big plans are literally renting a pole saw and, and cutting down some pine tree limbs. Like, that is all I've got planned this weekend. Have you ever operated a pole saw before? I have. And it's it's... I know the dangers behind it. I've I've been warned plenty of times. Oh no, but. I wasn't. I wasn't going to talk about the dangers. I mean, yeah, there are dangers, but anytime you use a chainsaw or a pole saw, I mean, you know, you got to be careful. Those things will work you to death. Like if you've got a lot to do, if it's just a little bit of trim work, yeah, no big deal. Cut the branches down. No, it's a lot pieces that you can drag up. But if you've got a lot of work to do, whoo, that'll work you. Yeah, and I haven't done any kind of real like upper body exercises, you know, since high school maybe. So uh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, well, enjoy it. Uh, it's good to be working in your own yard. How is the new house? It's great. We're still getting settled in. Uh, it's got its little quirks too. Like the house is built in '91, so it's a little bit older. And the previous owner wanted to put a surround sound system in the house but since it was built in 91 that kind of good technology didn't exist yet so all they did was put outlets in really inconvenient places in every single room of the house and all the outlets are it's like the do you remember those old speakers those big speakers that people used to have where sure you had the the black and the red little wires yeah. That's what it is. So it's a system where you just you would get one of those speakers 
and set it up in front of this outlet and it would accept the black and the red wire and there was a control pad in one of the bedrooms that is not there anymore but the outlet for the control pad is still there <laughs> and they are they're ugly looking and they're real big they're bigger than a regular outlet and they stick out of the wall like two three inches and they're in spots where the previous owner wanted a speaker but not us so I've got these hmm. ugly little things like that. It's a great house, but I just wish I could come in and just cover that thing up. I, I will room. say, well, and I mean, you technically can do that. You can go in and take them out and patch them up and then repaint everything. It's just not an easy proposition. Uh, I, I will say that I am a huge advocate for Sonos. You familiar with that? I am not. Those are the speakers that operate not on Bluetooth, but on like your home Wi-Fi system, so you can control them all from your phone, Ooh. and they're incredible. All, all you got to have is a power outlet, so they're completely wireless. You just plug them into the wall, and then you know you set it up on your home Wi-Fi system, and they are spectacular. They're not like super cheap. I mean, they're not like the most expensive speakers in the history of the world. But uh, can you route it to your TV? Uh, yeah, but you've got to get a certain piece of equipment for that. Like like the regular small speakers are just kind of to play music. You've got to buy either the sound bar or they've got a smaller version of the sound bar that you put on the TV, and then you can tie them all together. Nice. It's, it's pretty pretty awesome. Rippy, what's up with you on a Friday? Not much. Going to play some golf this weekend. Um, no pole saw for me. but <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever operated a pole saw before, Rippy? No. Like... You'll keep exposing me because we had that one day where I told you I operated the jackhammer, but that seems to be like the trump card. Like if you say you operated a jackhammer, people are like, oh, this guy does hard work, but I haven't done anything else other than that. Okay. I mean, you've run a weed eater before, right? Yes. Does that count? I mean, I guess it is a machine. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, gas-powered, mostly. Although they make the electric ones and the plug-in ones now and all that good stuff. Like a rake and a shovel count, too? Yeah, being on the business end of a shovel is no joke now. It is not. It no, is not. No joke at all. Uh, are you feeling good sitting in the uh, the throne today? I am. I feel taller and more powerful, which the former is probably a bigger bigger significant occurrence than the latter. That you feel taller? Yeah, in this chair. I don't know why. You feel plenty powerful on a daily basis anyway? Yeah, and I can see the tech sign now, so that's really contributing to the power You know, aspect. you can always see it. No, we had to, so I something's up with my computer. When y'all tried to get me to do it, I couldn't get into uh, whatever it is to get into it. It's, it's probably operator Google. error, but I'm going to blame the uh, blame the computer. All you got to do is download Google Chrome and then go to the little apps part of your... It's, it's fairly simple. Speaking of the text line... If you would like to join us this afternoon, you can do so. C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. Game six of the NBA Finals last night and another major injury for the Warriors. First of all, congratulations to the Raptors. You win an NBA championship, there's no asterisk on it. There's just not. Uh, every team that wins a title in professional sports catches breaks along the way. The Blues caught breaks along the way. The Patriots have caught breaks along the way when they've won big. Everybody that wins a national championship or a national or a, a world championship, a title, catches breaks along the way. And certainly the Raptors are no different. But it's not fair to discount 
a world championship in basketball because of a couple of injuries. Do you agree with that, Borky? The Warriors dynasty was the luckiest run of injuries ever. Not ever, but like one of up there. They had such good injury luck to opponents and themselves. You said the Warriors did? Yeah. Like throughout so like, their run? Like okay. that first year in 2015, like the Cavs were decimated. They didn't have anyone hurt in 17 or 18. And in 16, Kawhi Leonard, no, 17, Kawhi Leonard got hurt in game one of that conference finals, which turned that into a rout. Like, so nobody's feeling sorry for them. Chris Paul gets hurt in game six of last year when they were on the brink. That probably yeah. changes that series. Like they were, they were had the most. For, you can't, like you said, you can't discount it because they had the most fortunate run of injuries in the last probably like half decade. Pretty devastating series of injuries though for the Warriors with Kevin Durant blowing out his Achilles in Game Five, and then last night with two minutes and change to play in the third quarter, uh, Clay Thompson going up for a breakaway layup. Not a, I mean it's like a one on one, but he's got an angle to the rim. He's fouled. Uh, goes down hard. They slowed it down. At f- the, on the very first replay, I thought, ooh, ankle. And then he immediately grabs his knee, and when they replayed it a second time, you could see the knee buckle. And it has been confirmed today by the Warriors that Clay Thompson's got a torn ACL. That stinks for him. He seems like a good guy. Yeah, and especially with the way he tried to come back. Did you see that? Because he was walking up the tunnel, and... Maybe I understand why the rule's in place, but if you get fouled and come out of the game and don't shoot those free throws, you are not allowed to come back into the game. I didn't know that. I guess it's a very unique situation, but I had no idea. As he's walking up the tunnel, when somebody tells him that, he turns around and runs back onto the court with a torn ACL, makes the free throws, gets back on defense, then Steve Kerr tells him to get out, and he's mad. He's got a torn ACL, and he's mad at his coach for trying to take him out of the game. I just that's the kind of stuff that people were missing during the Durant injury and the the it's the Warriors fault and the players feel pressured. No they don't. Because Klay Thompson just like Kevin Durant's a competitor. He got hurt in a game, but somebody told him, "Hey, we need you." And it, without even thinking. There was not a me like- aspect. He went back on the court because he wanted his team to win. And everybody just forgets that or forgot that when talking about the Durant injury. Did they forget okay, it, or did I'm, it not make for good talk TV? Probably that. Yeah, that eh, may be fair. I guess I was just going to say that you know, I'm certainly not an orthopedic surgeon. I've just always heard it said that when you tear an ACL, and obviously they didn't know exactly what the injury was uh, immediately, once it's torn, there's not a whole lot more damage you can do to it. So could he have theoretically finished the game last night? I mean, I guess we'll never know the answer to that. Hey, something I'd like to share with you as we wrap up this first segment today. Uh, if you listen to the JT show or Good Times, uh, Good Things with Rebecca Turner, um, you know that Rhino has been missing for the last couple of weeks. He has been back home in Tupelo uh, dealing with a, uh, a tough family situation. Rhino's mother passed away yesterday, and Patsy Montgomery is no longer with us. She was diagnosed with an unexpected illness and has uh, passed away. She died on Wednesday, uh, not yesterday. Um, Visitation is tonight. The funeral is tomorrow morning in Tupelo. And just want Rhino and his entire family to know that we're thinking about him and praying for them in this really difficult time. Sports Talk Mississippi. Glad to have you along on this Friday afternoon. Sports Talk Mississippi. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, and Brian Scott Rippey. 
Thanks for being with us. Again, you can text the show on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. Also, the Sports Talk Mississippi Twitter feed at Sports Talk M-I-S-S. Uh, we are uh, glad to have you along. Got a bunch to get to this afternoon uh, as we kind of roll into a, a fairly busy uh, a busy weekend. Um, College World Series gets started uh, I say a busy weekend. You got the U.S. Open and the College World Series. That's two pretty good, big events. But at the same time, those are not. I mean, it's, that's not NFL football. It's not the NBA Finals. Is this a good sports weekend? I feel like for me, it's a really good sports weekend because I dig the U.S. Open, especially when it's on the West Coast and you can watch golf into the evening and. You guys know how much I love college baseball. But for just the casual sports fan, is this good sports weekend, or is it just, oh, yeah, if I happen to be by the TV, I'll watch whatever's on. It's better than what we're going to deal with in three weeks, that's for sure. Hey, enjoy a weekend like this while you can. Baseball? <laughs> yeah. It's downhill from here, for sure. Average sports guy, though, like in like in it depends on what region of the country, right? Because like outside like the South... And like maybe a couple other places, like College World Series, not really doing much for you. It's just U.S. Open, so I don't know what B minus, and we're about to ascend into the C D range for the next couple weeks, month. Yeah, what's what the weekend's next? a C? Uh, you know what I mean? Open maybe Championship, open, yeah. The British Open, yeah. All Star Game, it's kind of cool. Home Run Derby, All Star Game, that always coincides or usually coincides with uh, media days for the SEC and college football. Um, but you get to the point where, you know, it's a lot of Major League Baseball, which is kind of like your old friend, right? It's always there. You can kind of come and go and miss a week and then lock back in and, you know, not a part of the season where if you miss a week, like, you, you can't catch up pretty easily. Speaking Sweet. of Major League Baseball, um, Ken Rosenthal has written a column at The Athletic, and here's how it starts. Major League Baseball needs to face reality. It's time to deaden the baseball, not to create a second dead ball era, just to get back to normal. The way home runs are flying, they're losing their meaning, their relevance, their ability to connect the game of today with the game of yesterday. And if you ruin the home run records, you're risking major damage to the sport. We know this because it happened not so long ago. He also says, know why I hated the steroid era? It wasn't just the cheating, the creation of uneven playing fields between those who used and those who did not. It was also the warping of statistics, the distortion of generational comparisons fans and reporters cherish, even though they rarely were apples to apples to begin with. Well, here we are again. There are parts of his premise that I kind of agree with, but it feels like kind of like the typical baseball reporter guy going on the, oh, well, now you can't compare the records from a bygone era with this era. And I don't know that that many people care about that. Rippy, what, what's your initial reaction to the idea of deadening the baseball? And that doesn't mean, I mean, maybe it means making it a little softer. Maybe it means raising the seams so that there's a little bit more wind resistance on balls that are flying out of the yard at a record pace. But isn't there a little bit of a fallacy in the argument of, okay, home runs because of the ball? 
when we're really looking at a different approach to the game than we've ever seen? Um, I actually don't hate it. Because, like, it's getting, it is really getting, and I'm not sure, like, I, I don't know how this would affect or, like, worsen or better the whole three-result sport that you're at now, strikeout, walk, or home run, which is probably the sport's overarching problem right now from a viewership standpoint, just because there's not enough motion on television. But I don't hate this because, well, I don't want to necessarily see less home runs, but you're seeing balls that are just being, like, poked out of the yard, and, like, there's already enough places with short porches to where, like, it's like, is that really a home run? Like, I don't know. I feel like the home run is, I don't want to say devalued because it's actually at a premium in terms of, like, how players are valued. But, like, like a 30 home run guy is not nearly as impressive as it was 15, 20 years ago. So, like, I don't necessarily hate it. But people love seeing home runs, don't they? But you could still probably find a way to, I mean, like, if you deaden the ball, how many home runs is that really taking away? Like, are you taking away the cheap shot that barely clears, you know, the three you know, 30 sign or whatever in the left field corner, or are you making it to where guys are slugging the hell out of one that dies in center field? Like, what are you talking about? And he mentions in this column uh, talking about 400-plus footers. Well, deadening the baseball, that's still gone in every park. Right, exactly right. And, yeah, people like that. And, like, I'm not, I wouldn't, like, it's a careful line to walk because you don't want to, like, not, you don't want to make the game less exciting than it already is, if that makes any sense, because there's not that many balls in play. But I think you could do that by deadening the ball as long as you don't go too far with it. Ken Rosenthal calls it bludgeon ball. He says baseball's home run eruption is due to an aerodynamic designed baseball and science. He points out that in the last four days, I think this article came out yesterday, so the last five, six days, you've seen a 486-foot home run, which I think is pretty cool, four straight home runs by the Nationals, Four home runs in an inning by the Braves, 13 home runs in a game played between the Phillies and the Diamondbacks, and if pace holds, we will average 2.7 home runs per game, which will shatter the previous record. Major League Baseball has admitted that the ball is traveling with decreased air resistance, but doesn't provide the reason why. Um, We've seen... Adjustments that have been made in the past, including the lowering of the pitcher's mound. Currently, the pitcher's mound is 10 inches. The rubber is 10 inches above sea level, for lack of a better way to, to describe it. If, if, if home plate is at sea level, it's 10 inches higher than that. And one more example, home runs way up in AAA. And AAA is using the Major League Baseball ball for the first time ever. That blew me away. Why are the minors not using the same ball as the majors? I don't know. Doesn't this get into whole like like I feel like this really came up in the 2017 World Series between the Astros and Dodgers, where you had that ridiculous Game Five, and everybody's like, "Are the balls juiced?" Yeah, probably. And so I feel like this guy's. I feel like he's he's calling for a minute change because I don't know if it's necessarily the volume of home runs or the like it is in the sense but I think he's more like gearing it towards the type of balls that are getting out of the park that maybe didn't before like Borky's point a lot of 400 foot home runs well if you deaden the baseball those are probably still going over the fence anyway but do you really want the guy like I just I feel like I watch more baseball games now where a guy takes one the other way and like you think it's like a line out to right or something then it just kind of floats and floats and then it gets over the fence into the first row and you're like should that ball have really like should he have been rewarded for a home run with that cuz he didn't make that great a swing yeah 
You heard um, Ben Ingram say yesterday when we were talking about the Braves that Dansby Swanson hit an opposite field home run earlier this year and told Ben that it was the first time ever that he had gone oppo for a long ball. So those are the types, those are the ones that he's probably trying to eliminate. Yeah, I guess maybe so. I, I heard a little bit of a conversation last night on the um, the Major League game that was being played at TD Ameritrade. Carl Ravitch and um, Kyle Peterson and Eduardo Perez were doing the broadcast. And, you know, Ravitch said, you know, you've got guys that are quote unquote big boppers who are frustrated that guys that are not necessarily home run hitters are hitting double digit home runs. And that ultimately that is diminishing the value of the guys who are home run hitters. So he articulated what I was trying to say much better, which is probably why he's Carl Ravage. But yeah, I, I think I agree with that. We had, do have one text that said it must be due to climate change. I'm not. I I don't wouldn't <laughs> mind squatting on that take for a while. I need more information. But if, I, attacking the home runs probably not the best thing because for the the casual sports fan, the home run is the most exciting play in the game. But when I read this, I kept thinking, what would I rather have? Let's say there's two outs in an inning, one home run to score one run. Or three singles to score one run. Is there an inverse? Is there an inverse way that this, this, uh, this happens to where if it's a little bit harder to get the baseball out of the yard, you see more guys actually do the whole choke up and make contact instead of you know still swing for the fence with two strikes? Because like, I, but the way it, the analytics are, it, the answer would still be try to hit home runs, right? I mean, maybe, but if it's harder to get the ball out of the yard, like the whole home run thing, and I think the balls flying has a little bit to do with this, has destroyed situational hitting. Just absolutely destroyed it. It's a joke. Like, runner on third in the MLB and less than two outs, like one out, no out, used to be a guaranteed run. Now it's like you could strike three guys out pretty easily and get out of there because your approach doesn't change. And I'm not but necessarily because for, nobody's trying to hit a ground ball on the right side of the infield to score a run. Right. I'm not necessarily for or against that one way or another. I'm just asking if that if it's a little bit harder to hit the ball out of the yard, even just slightly, does that change that at all? I have no idea. I'm, it's an interesting question to ponder, though. Thomas in Greenwood wants to know if it's not climate change, could it be Trump's fault? He says, sorry, couldn't resist. I like the wavelength Thomas is on. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. What appear to be the closing odds for the College World Series. I guess if you had a major injury between now and first pitch tomorrow, they could change. But this is what we've got for now. Odds on favorites to win the College World Series, both Vanderbilt and Arkansas. At three to one, Mississippi State is at four to one, so the second best odds of anybody in the field. Louisville is at eight to one. Same thing for Texas Tech. Auburn and Florida State ten to one, and Michigan twelve to one. So the bracket sets up like this: the left side of the bracket. Tomorrow you've got Michigan, Texas Tech in game one. Game two is Arkansas, Florida State. And then on Sunday in the afternoon, Vanderbilt and Louisville with Mississippi State and Auburn on Sunday night. So, Rippy, let's talk odds first. You, you look at those odds that are out there. What do you think the best value is? What, what, what makes the most sense? Could you give those to me in, like, dumb, dumb terms, like plus whatever? Uh, I mean, I guess it would just be, like, Vandy and Arkansas plus 300. Mississippi State plus 400, uh, Louisville, Texas Tech plus 800, 
Wow. Auburn and Florida State plus a thousand and Michigan plus twelve hundred. Florida State, Mississippi State, and Louisville is in particular, I should have buried the lead there, seem like great value. Yeah. Louisville at plus eight hundred, they're pretty good. I think they're really good, and I've I've said this. I, I I think I believe it, and and I do admit that there could be some recency bias here for me because I was just there last weekend. I think Louisville, because of the pitching matchup, will beat Vanderbilt on Sunday in the early game. Well, if they do that, they're really set up, and then they one like that's a win for America because the Whistlers one lost away from leaving, and two, even you put a club like Vandy with that pitching depth in the losers bracket that early, that's uh that's tough. I'd state's not that I guess that great a value because I think like Vegas seems to know like how good they are. Like if you could get yeah. good in that at plus five or six hundred, it might be different, but that's still decent value there. Louisville to me that would be the one that I would like keep an eye on. Let's pick the uh, the opening round games. So Michigan Texas Tech game one two o'clock Central Time tomorrow afternoon. Who do you like in that game? I don't know a ton about either club, admittedly, but I would think I'd go Texas Tech. Borky, you got a lean there? Probably that as well. Yeah. It, see, in this in this the scenario in Omaha where teams benefit, like I always wondered if Ole Miss had made it, would they have struggled a little bit? Because while it, Will Etheridge was a good pitcher, he's not like your front end front end like cream of the crop ace, and you really need that to get by the first game. Because if you lose the first game in in the College World Series, like that, that's tough. Yeah, I, I think that you have three, although you could argue four, bona fide aces that are going to pitch in game one. Um, Maybe five. Texas Tech's game one pitcher is really good, and Michigan's is really good as well. But I would say that Isaiah Campbell for Arkansas, yes, Reed Detmers from Louisville, Small. and Ethan Small from Mississippi State, uh, th- those are the three that I would put at the top of the list. It's hard not to put Drake Fellows there because he lost for the first time all season long last Friday against Duke. He was undefeated prior to that. Drake Fellows' numbers just aren't that good, though. This year, I mean, the win-loss, which ultimately is what you're looking for, but if you dive a little deeper into the numbers for Drake Fellows, they are not dominant, like Detmers for Louisville, like Small, or or like Isaiah Campbell. Well, he's the ultimate, like, like he you, he's the guy you would point to to like point why wins and losses for a pitcher is a completely pointless stat because he's got dudes just bludgeoning baseballs and scoring nine runs a game. What happened to um, this? I've always heard about the College World Series that it's a pitcher's park. It's a bigger park than they're used to. Balls really die there. The wind blows in. So it's probably a dumb question, but whatever. It's Friday. Why do you need that bona fide ace in game one when really the narrative is you can get by not having the most elite pitchers because balls tend to stay in the yard there? Because college baseball in particular is more like I mean, you could score a lot of runs without hitting the ball out of the ballpark. Hell, Ole Miss was a pretty good example of that at times this year. They didn't hit, like, particularly in that late March to early May stretch, they didn't hit the ball out of the yard a lot, but they were still scoring runs in bunches. And so, like, I mean, if you got guys literally like struggling to make contact against a Fellows or Detmer or Small or something like that, like, that's a leg up than running like a Jack Owen out there, even if guys aren't hitting it over the fence. Yeah, um... 
you know, you, if, if you want to go into like the SEC stats, Mississippi State's got the most doubles. I think I think Mississippi State offensively plays really well in TD Ameritrade. Uh, I think Vanderbilt and Louisville both play really well, uh, especially Vanderbilt because they've got some guys that can certainly drive it out of the yard. But that's a dangerous lineup. I think Arkansas is really built for TD Ameritrade. Yes, they've got. Casey Martin and Heston Kerstad and Dominic Fletcher and, and guys that can hit it out of the park. But Arkansas is a team that hits a ton of doubles. And you kind of saw that on display against Ole Miss's pitching last weekend. It wasn't, even with the wind blowing out, and, and you were there, Rippy, so correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, but I didn't feel like Arkansas won two games because they hit 15 home runs last weekend. I thought they just hit and hit and hit and hit. And a bunch of those were doubles. They hit fifteen. How many home runs did they really hit? Uh was it five? Uh, I don't know. I would actually bet more than that. Um, no, you're right though. The top of the other than Vanderbilt, honestly, like state's lineups is really good. But honestly, top to bottom, other than Vanderbilt, Arkansas might have the second best lineup in the country, top to bottom. And you might could make an argument for one, like even their leadoff hitter, like that Ezel kid, he could play on my team. And like when you get you get the two righties and then you get the four lefties in a row, like one through six in particular, there's no break at all. And when they turn over, and like if you don't get seven, eight, nine out, which is what you kind of saw with Hoagland, particularly get in trouble and Etheridge as well, like those one through sixes, they're gonna do damage. It's just a matter of how much. Arkansas as a team has one hundred thirty six doubles on the year, and they've hit eighty five home runs. Team slugging percentage four ninety two, so that's not bad. Mississippi State, are they at 160 doubles? Did, did I dream that up? Let me pull their baseball stats up. Uh, Mississippi State led the SEC. That's exactly right. 160 doubles, only 63 home runs this year. So Mississippi State was not a team that hit a ton of home runs. You had Foscu, who led the way with 14, and Dustin Skelton, who had 10. Those were the only two in double figures this year for Mississippi State. You compare that to Arkansas, 10 home runs from Trevor Ezell, 13 from Jack Kinley, 15 from Heston Kerstad, 11 from Dominic Fletcher, and 15 from Casey Martin. So they've got five guys in double-digit home runs and then 136 doubles. But I tend to look at Mississippi State's doubles, the 160 of them on the year, and the fact that they just do it over and over and over and think that's a bigger advantage than having five guys that drive the ball out of the yard. So it favors gap power instead of wall power. So other than Arkansas, is there anybody in the field that relies too heavily on hitting the ball out of the yard that is at a disadvantage? Or is there somebody else that hits a bunch of doubles, sprays the ball around, uh, that the bigger park isn't going to hurt but will actually kind of help? Well, to answer your ace question, like I think you just answered your own question, you need dudes that miss barrels. Which is why we talk about elite pitching being such a big deal. Here's a question for you, Rip. Um, more important in the College World Series, elite starters or an elite bullpen? Ooh. Vanderbilt, by the way, has 157 doubles, 93 home runs, and a 526 slugging average. It's a scary lineup for Vanderbilt. I'd say starters because you're playing a lot of games, and 
like bullpen is not really like the depth isn't that big of an issue because you're not playing back to back days. You're getting a day off, multiple days off in between. So if you have four guys that can give you length, like Vanderbilt particularly having Raby as their fourth guy this week, like that's a that's kind of an embarrassment of riches. And if all like four of those guys go in like go six, uh, spoiler alert, they're probably taking home the trophy. Yeah. Vanderbilt has three guys with double-digit home runs. J.J. Bleday leads the country with 26. Julian Infante and Steven Scott both have 12 home runs. But Vanderbilt has eight players with double-digit doubles. 19 for Austin Martin, 13 for Bleday, 20 for Steven Scott, 22 for Ethan Paul, 13 for Clark. Ty Duvall's got 11. Pat DeMarco's got 16 doubles. And Harrison Ray has 18 doubles. That's a lineup that can hurt you up and down throughout the order. Team batting average for Vanderbilt of 318. Team batting average for Mississippi State, 317. I think those are the two best offensive clubs in the College World Series. I think. But, if you look at results from across the entire season, you can find a handful of games where those offenses have been shut down. Same thing with Arkansas. There's a handful of games where they ran into one of those elite arms and they only scored a run or two. Doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Friday afternoon with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Scott Rippey. Going to check in with Brian Haydad coming up a little bit later this afternoon. In fact, we will do that in the uh, the five o'clock hour. He'll join us uh, in time for the college football fix. Although we might substitute college football for a little college baseball today. He'll spend a couple of segments with us, and uh, we'll spend a little bit more time on that uh, ranking of the SEC coaches list that we kind of glossed over at the end of the show uh, yesterday afternoon. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Have you been thinking about buying a piece of recreational property? Like, you're not a farmer. I mean, you might put a garden on it, or you might decide you want to grow some sunflowers. But really, more than anything, you just kind of want a place to get away. Maybe it's a spot where you can hunt a little bit in the fall, or you can fish a little bit if it's got some water on it. But more than anything, it's just a spot for you to be able to go and have your place. Put a little shop on it, maybe a little one-bedroom cabin on it just to be able to kind of get out and away and press the reset button. Well, if that sounds like maybe what you're looking for or you have been looking for, you ought to check out Mississippi Land Bank from a financing standpoint. One, they can help you with the financing or refinancing of recreational property, but they also might have a little bit of a lead. Like, you you know about what you're looking for. Maybe you're looking for 40 or 50 acres. Maybe you're looking for 100 acres. Well, go see the local branch office of Mississippi Land Bank that's closest to you. They're scattered all across North Mississippi. And just kind of tell them what you're looking for. Say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of in the market for a piece of property. I'd like something that's got some water on it. It's got a creek running through it. Or I don't care at all. I want something that's got hardwood on it. Well, the thing is, the folks at Mississippi Land Bank deal in land every single day. And so they hear about properties that are available for sale. And they might be able to help you in your search to find exactly what it is that you're looking for. Plus, they're fantastic people. Even if you aren't in the market right now, stop by. Uh, They'll give you a cup of coffee, visit with you, and uh, you'll be glad that you took the time to stop by and visit. MSLandBank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. All right. 
Let's do a little uh, countdown. 100 teams in 100 days. This day is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. This day is bananas. 100 teams in 100 days. Okay, ready? Three, two, one. We continue the countdown. Team number 87 on the countdown of 100 teams in 100 days. The Illinois Fighting Illini. Sorry, team number 78. This fight song mentions Princeton and Wisconsin for some reason. Why do you think that is? Princeton's Their biggest better. rivals? Princeton's a better academic institution and Wisconsin's better at sports? I don't know. Maybe so. The Lovey Smith era rolls on in Champaign, Illinois. They are paying Lovey Smith a lot of money. The uh, The results, though, have not been great to uh, to this point. Last year, Illinois went 4-8. and eight. They beat Kent State and beat Western Illinois, so a good 2-0 and o to start the year. They beat Rutgers in week five, and then toward the end of the season, first weekend in November, they beat Minnesota. Illinois closed out the year with losses to Nebraska, Iowa, and Northwestern. The Northwestern game was close. They lost it 24-16. to Northwestern went on to win the Big Ten West. I can't even remember. I think it's the Big Ten West, right? Right. It okay. used to be either the Legends or the Leaders, but... Yeah. They did away with that stupidity pretty quickly. How about game number 11 of the season for Illinois? They got beat 63 to nothing at home by Iowa. And then extended their football coach. What do you think that's all about? It felt like a little bit of a reach when Illinois hired Lovey Smith after he moved on from the NFL. Um,. And it still feels like a little reach. Somebody up there just must really believe in him. I mean, I guess... I wonder if they didn't have the financial capital to make a change. And if you're not going to make a change, it's worse to just sit in limbo rather than recommit to a guy and at least make it appear publicly that you're all in on him so it's easier for him to recruit and kind of build his program because just not extending him and you know it leaking out one way or another that they just couldn't fire him right now because of financial reasons, good luck getting recruits to campus. It's already going to be hard enough either way, but at least committing to him makes it seem like there's going to be some stability which can't be used against you in recruiting. I, I don't know. Um, Lovey Smith, when he was hired in 2016... Signed a six-year, twenty-one million-dollar contract. So they're paying three and a half million dollars a year to Lovey Smith. And to Borky's point, they extended that contract after last season after going four and eight. Here's the reason they did that: they generated some buzz after excitement around the football team was non-existent. Two predecessors had no previous experience on the national stage. Illinois had gone five years consecutively without a winning record. And so they went after a guy who had taken a football team to the Super Bowl. Following the 2008 Rose Bowl game appearance 
in which Illinois had averaged more than 61,000 per game. That's over capacity. Numbers had plummeted to the point where only about 7,000 people showed up in the final home game of 2014 with Tim Beckman as the head coach. You get 7,000 people at a game when you're in the Big Ten, your coach is getting fired. Um, Bill Cubitt followed Tim Beckman. Wasn't much better. Uh, good grief. They filled the stadium about two-thirds of the way for him. And then Lovey Smith generated some excitement. But I think some of that excitement probably has gone away because they've not been very good and there's frustration. Again, 2008, so 11 years ago, Illinois played in the Rose Bowl. I actually saw them play that year. Juice Williams? Juice right? Williams, yeah, in the horseshoe at, at Ohio State. It was awesome. Lovey's got a pretty sweet beard. <laughs> you like his beard? Is that the, the best thing he's got going? Well, right it's now like, it is. It's like his face. Like he like does it like he doesn't look like clean shaven. He looks rather young, but then not rather young, but like young enough, and then he sprouts a beard and it there's a it's it's pretty much snow white, so it kinda dates yeah. him a little. My, I I guess my question with Illinois is is there a path to six wins in a bowl game for them this year? They should beat Akron in the opener. They should, should. beat UConn. Should. I'm just saying, okay, I'm going through the path that I think is there for six wins. Maybe I should say you've got to beat Akron in the opener. You've got to beat UConn on the road in week two. You've got to beat Eastern Michigan. Nebraska's week four. They're not going to win that game. I think Nebraska's going to take a big step forward in year two under Scott Frost. They were much better in the second half of the season a year ago. Probably need to beat Minnesota if you're going to get to a bowl game. They'll lose to Michigan, lose to Wisconsin, probably lose to Purdue. you got to beat Rutgers. And then you probably got to beat Northwestern, which is certainly easier said than done. But the back half of that schedule, good grief. Especially From, now that we know Northwestern's playing the dirty game like everybody else. And, like, I don't, like, whenever you, like, like couple the two outcomes, like couple two outcomes together, it seems less likely. Like, in realistically, what are what is the odds they beat Akron and UConn? Like, what would you put the percentage at? Oh, I'd say over under one and a half wins. I would take the under. I think I'd take the under. I'd go sixty five percent of beating both. And you're going to get to six wins with a sixty five percent chance to beat UConn and Akron. So well, you wanted me to combine the percentage. Yeah, I know, but like if you're if you're only giving them a sixty five percent chance to beat UConn and Akron, like that tells me it's probably going to be tough sledding. I mean, admittedly, I've not dug very deep. Not on breaking Illinois down football. Not breaking down two deeps in champagne. No. Last time Illinois won the Big Ten, Ron Turner was the coach in two thousand one. They went ten and two, seven and one in conference play. Prior to that, nineteen ninety. Who won the Big Ten the year they played in the Rose Bowl? 2008. So that would have had to have been... That was when Florida beat Ohio State badly in the national title game, right? Yep. So that's I guess that's what it was. Yeah, so Ohio State went to the national the, the BCS championship game and Illinois got to go to the Rose Bowl. Who did they play in the Rose Bowl? I don't remember that game at all. Granted, I was like 13, but... Do you think Porky, for Porky West Coast team Rose Bowl it was they beat uh, they lost to Southern Cal 
49 to 17. Couple of blue bloods there. That was the Zucker. Ron Zook. Sports Talk Mississippi, Illinois, team number 78 on the countdown of 100 teams in 100 days. Today was press conference day in Omaha. We're going to hear from Brian Haydad, get a little insight on what he heard and what maybe it means, if there was anything interesting that happened today. But in the meantime, we will give you some of what uh, Chris Limonis had to say. The setup was, was it all Eight coaches, or did they split it up? Four coaches, four coaches. They did four and four, which was really, it was pretty cool. It was a 50-minute long press conference, and uh, the moderator just kind of went from coach to coach. So somebody would ask a question, and he would just tell every coach to answer the same question. But you had three guys up there that are really familiar with each other, with Butch and Lamonis and uh, McDonald, all, I mean, right next to each other. So they kept referencing back and forth to their college days or previous stops. It was kind of cool in that setting. Uh, for my sake, doing this job well, and then Tim sucked. Corbin also from the SEC, right? Yeah, and so they they talked about the SEC a lot and stuff like that. But uh, Lamonis even said at one point there was a big Citadel crew, uh, all of their old buddies coming to watch them in the the College World Series, which is pretty neat. But for me, doing my job, I had to sit there and watch all fifty minutes of it instead of getting just Lamonis. But at least it was entertaining in the meantime. Yeah, it was pretty good, though. I, I caught some of it. Uh, they carried some of it on SEC Network. They were doing a College World Series special on there and uh, saw some of that earlier today. Let's let you hear Chris Lamonis's opening statement, uh, I guess in its entirety. This is what Chris Lamonis had to say about Mississippi State getting back to the College World Series. Well, we're excited. Um, I say we. We're excited to be back. I know our kids have been super excited, our fans, our coaches. Um, probably a different, unique situation where you have a team that was here last year and a new coach. So um, our kids have been, you know, really focused on on getting back here. That's I know every team in the country has, but our group is um, after the loss they had last year. It's been a piece they've talked about, and it is so hard to get here. It's, it's a veteran group. Um, you know, we have some uh, some guys who played here. Our groups played, and some of our seniors have played in four super regionals and two. Omaha experiences so for them it's been a it's been a fun ride with a lot of different head coaches during that time and um, you know I'm happy to be here with those guys Um, I feel like we got a talented group they've been real consistent over the year Um, we're pretty much a you know an older pitching staff and we have some nice pieces in the bullpen and then a lineup of some older guys and I know our the Jake Mangums and the Ethan Smalls um, they're excited to play here and, and play in front of these great crowds in the city of Omaha. It's a, it's a special place, and I've had an opportunity to be here a couple times as an assistant and the first time as a head coach. It's awesome to be here, you know, with your – he said I was one of his best friends, so I say best friend. So he's a godparent of my kids and everything else. So we've coached together and everything else. Now, we have a lot of – we have a huge Citadel group coming, and so you can imagine all our teammates and everything will be a part of it. It's just a – it's a neat thing. I, I felt the pressure because – he was in the he was in Omaha um, before we ever played our super regional game. So I was sitting there thinking, man, I don't want to blow this. I'd love to be able to go out there and and be uh, be there with one of my teammates. So it's it's a neat thing. It's a, it's a good group. I'm sure we'll have a lot of Mississippi State fans in the city, and we're looking forward to them all getting here. Obviously, Chris Lamonis is talking about Dan McDonald. Uh, if you heard our conversation with Chris Lamonis on Monday. Uh, Then you heard him talk a little bit about that relationship. They were teammates together at the Citadel. Um, Chris Limonis was a first baseman. Dan McDonald was a second baseman. Beyond being teammates, they were roommates. Uh, When Dan McDonald 
So, so McDonald left the Citadel to come to Ole Miss, and he was Mike Bianco's recruiting coordinator and lead assistant there. And when he got the head coaching job at um, uh, at Louisville following the 2006 season, so he was named head coach at Louisville after the 2006 year going into the 2007 season, the first call that he made, and it was, it was interesting hearing Dan tell this story last week. Last Thursday, he and I visited for a while before, or I guess while Louisville was practicing, and he said, I called Lamonis and I said, you're coming with me to Louisville. Pack your stuff. Let's go. He didn't call and say, hey, do you want a job? Hey, can I convince you to come? He said, it's time. You're coming with me. Because Chris Lamonis had stayed on at the Citadel for the entire time that um, McDonald had left and had been an assistant coach at Ole Miss. And so when Dan McDonald got the job at Louisville, Chris Lamonis was his very first call. Uh, he was on his staff uh, until he got the head coaching job at Indiana. So I think they had eight years together, and that was three trips, two or three trips to the College World Series, maybe just two. Um, and then uh, Lamonis got the head coaching job at uh, at Indiana before moving on to Mississippi State. And then his point about the pressure being on, Louisville won twice before Mississippi State ever stepped on the field. I was nearly home from Louisville last uh, last Saturday night by the time first pitch happened uh, in Starkville. Chris Lamonis was asked if his team was going to need to adjust to the big field at TD Ameritrade. You know, one of our strength, uh, strengths is our outfield. So I think we got some veteran guys out there with Jake in center and Elijah and Rowdy that have, that have played outfield and they played here last year. So I think they are familiar with it and uh, they run. You know, they're able to run and cover some ground. And, um, you know, they've been, they've been working for it all week, telling me what to do. You know, because I'm the outfield coach also. But, and then our infield defense, it's, uh, you know, we're excited to get out there and take ground balls today to see how the infield's playing. But we've been a pretty solid defensive club all year. Rippy, it's interesting to me that when asked about adjusting to the big field, that he went with the defensive angle instead of the offensive angle. So, so generally, we start talking about well, it's hard to hit home runs there. You got to hit the ball in the gaps. Doubles are what scores runs. But when Lamonis was asked about it, he immediately went to defense, experience in the outfield, speed in the outfield, and a familiar ballpark as opposed to the offensive angle. Probably, but what like it sounded like the question was worded when he asked about a big outfield instead of like the dimensions of the park. Yeah, like I wonder sense. if it was like defensively worded, but yeah, I mean, like it certainly helps to have a fast. Like to your point, what you were getting at, like it certainly helps to have a like good defensive outfield because you remember, like Ole Miss hasn't had a great defensive outfield for the last three four years, but that that one that went to Omaha in fourteen, it was what Lee Woodman and Bousfield. Those dudes yeah. could go get it, and that helped a lot because remember in that first game, was it Bousfield or Woodman that made the catch in right center? In the what was like a one-one game or something at the time that pretty much like saved their bacon at the time. Obviously, Virginia went on to win the game close, but I, that that particular catch sticks out to where like if you don't have a guy that can get that, that can turn a game. Well, and that's a, a big time speedy outfield you're talking about with Braxton Lee and left. He could fly, and you had Bousfield at that point playing center and JB Woodman in right field. Woodman didn't make the move to center field until the uh, to the following year, if I remember correctly. Is yeah, right? Woodman platooned part of that year with Will Jamison, but obviously by the time they had gotten to Omaha, that was uh, that was Woodman's position. I don't know if we're going to have time to hear all of what Chris Lamonis had to say, but I do think this is uh, is interesting. The biggest story of the College World Series this year is the fact that in his final season coaching, Mike Martin, number eleven, 
40 wins in 40 consecutive years is back in the College World Series one more time. Um, Chris Lamonis talked a little bit about Mike Martin's influence. There's no way I'm coaching at 75, so put that out there. Um, but there's been so many great coaches that have walked before us to get the game where it's supposed to be, and he may be the greatest. I mean, just the wins and everything else. And I've had an opportunity to, as an assistant coach to coach against them, and you know, every time we go to Florida State, your eyes are wide. And, and just like Butch said, you're treated like gold by coach. And so, um, yes, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a neat story. I mean, just watching them go through. And even before we got the regional seeds, our staff was going like, we don't want Florida State. We don't want Florida State because you knew – they were going to make a, a great run, which they have done. They're very talented, and, and he's done an unbelievable job with them. So when you look at guys that have had a massive impact on the game from the head coach position, who are the guys that immediately pop to mind? For, for, for me, Mike Martin's one of them. Uh, Augie Garrido, who passed away, what, a little over a year ago. Um, Skip Bertman. Ron Polk. Those are probably the four at the top of my list. You know, Ron, Ron Polk is the guy who probably deserves the most credit for making baseball a big deal in the Southeastern Conference kind of led the way. Now, LSU was certainly clipping on their heels, but Ron Polk had it rolling at Mississippi State in the early and mid-'80s, and it wasn't until the late-'80s and into the 90s when LSU really got it rolling. Now, having been McDonald on that 1989 team when he turned out to be the number 1 overall pick, it was a local product from Denham Springs, and then they win their first national championship in 1990, and kind of the rest is history. Five national championships for Skip Bertman in his time as the head coach at LSU. Jim Morris maybe goes on the list. The uh, the job that he did for a really long time at Miami, just remarkable. But 40 consecutive 40-win seasons. You know, Augie, Augie did it at a couple of different places. You know, won a national championship at Texas, won multiple national championships at Cal State Fullerton and really put the Cal State Fullerton program on the map. And there may be others, and you've got some coaches right now in the game who are trending in the direction of being kind of named in the same breath as those guys. But those are kind of the patriarchs of college baseball. Ron Dido, uh, Dido I think is how you say it, at, uh, at Southern Cal uh, as well. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Teddy Cahill will join us from Baseball America. When we come back, we'll let you hear more of what Butch Thompson, or excuse me, what uh, Chris Lamonis had to say coming up a little bit later this afternoon. Did you hear about the midnight Let's go to the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. That is Farm Bureau. Teddy Cahill joins us right now from Omaha, getting set for the College World Series. You can follow. Uh, Teddy on Twitter at Ted Cahill, C-A-H-I-L-L. Teddy, what's up, man? Just uh, enjoying a beautiful day here in Omaha, getting ready for this thing to get started. There's always a question as to what the weather is going to do, because it's no fun when you start fighting rain and thunderstorms and stuff gets pushed back. Is the weather looking pretty good for the next week and a half? 
Um, I kind of sort of looked at a forecast today, but to say I like truly ingested a lot of it would be uh, would be overstating <laughs> it. I think that it looked like there might have been some rain in the forecast tomorrow, but not a ton. I, there, there's some rain, I think, on several of these days potentially, but never anything that I don't sure. remember anything that was more than like 40% chance. So I, I think it looks pretty good, all things considered. That's good. And I guess live in the moment's not a bad thing uh, either for you as uh, as well. Teddy, I know what Vegas says. Uh, they've got Vanderbilt and Arkansas as the odds-on favorites. In your mind, who's the favorite to win the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with Vegas pretty much on that. I don't think that I would have them level the way that they do. I guess that's because Arkansas looks like it maybe has a slightly easier bracket than Vanderbilt does. Uh, but I, I would go with Vanderbilt uh, being ahead of, of Arkansas, but Arkansas is the favorite in, in that side. I asked I ask Rippy a question earlier, and I'd be curious to, to get your thought on this. What's more important for success in the College World Series? Is it elite starting pitching, or is it an elite bullpen? My weakness has long been starting pitching uh, when we're looking at me making picks or um, you know just even putting together a, a preseason top 25. I think I'll stand by that. Uh, you know, when you look at some of these teams that that have done it recently, they a lot of them have big time starting pitching, and I just think that when you talk about having an elite bullpen, usually that means you have depth, and depth here is not required in the way that it is in a regional or in the SEC tournament or even in a super regional because you have these off days. So you know, it's important to have a very reliable closer at the back end, but I don't think that. You know, just having, you know, five, six arms that you can count on down there is the most important thing because if things are going to plan, you're probably only going to three or four arms and really you're leaning on a couple. I was looking at the, the opening round matchups and, and kind of thinking about the starting pitching matchups and kind of landed on the fact that I think there are three really elite starters. Um, Isaiah Campbell from Arkansas, Ethan Small from Mississippi State, and Reed Detmers from Louisville. I, I know that's kind of discounting Drake Fellows a little bit and maybe discounting Caleb Killian a little bit at, at Texas Tech and, and Michigan's guy. Do you fall in line with that, or, or do you think I'm off base on saying that those three guys are kind of a cut above the rest? I think that those certainly Small is the best of them. Um, okay. He's had the best season. Uh, yeah, he might not be the, the most talented, but he's definitely had the best season, and Campbell is pretty close to that. Um, Detmers has been up and down for me, um, especially over the last couple months of the season. I think that he has the potential to be special, but I don't know that he has the consistency that Small um, and Campbell have had. And I think that you know to separate Detmers from Fellas, I don't know that I'd be willing to do that. I would be willing to cut Small and Campbell ahead of everyone. Am I crazy for thinking that Louisville's got more than just a puncher's chance against Vanderbilt in the opener? No, I think they do. I mean, you know, Detmers is uh, when he's on, he's he's really tough to hit. Uh, they have a lineup that just scored twenty six runs off of a good East Carolina team. And there's some line of thinking that with the draft over with, the the lineup can continue to produce their Louisville at a, a higher rate than it had been during the season. That with that out of their kids' minds, that they're 
um, just in a better space. And if that's true, then that's scary. Um, so I, I think they have a shot at it. Uh, you know, I, I think that it is one of the most intriguing opening matchups just because of how well those teams know each other. They play a midweek game every year. It's a little different, you know, not seeing weekend pitching, but those sure. teams know each other really well, and, and they're two really good teams going at it on Sunday afternoon. Teddy Cahill on your radio. You can follow him on Twitter at Ted Cahill, writes Baseball America, does a great job covering the college game. Teddy, I feel like with five of these eight, with, with Mississippi State, Louisville, Vanderbilt, Texas Tech, and Arkansas, the expectation really all season long was to get to Omaha. And I think a lot of people picked those three to get to Omaha. But it's almost like you got a little bit of a fairy tale with Michigan by going through Oregon State and UCLA to get here. Uh, from Auburn with the way they were dominant in the final game of the Super Regional against North Carolina, and obviously Florida State to, to get through Athens and to get through Baton Rouge. Of those three teams, which is most likely to kind of have the fairy tale continue? Well, I'm the one that picked Florida State to win the national title at the start of the year, so I'm uh, I'm obligated to say Florida State, and I do. Well, good for you. Um, you know, Auburn is a team that's running out of fumes right now in terms of their pitching staff. And Michigan, um, I, I, you can't discount them given what's happened the last two weeks, especially what happened last week in L.A. But when you look at Florida State. Um, they're finally clicking in the way that I thought they would when I made that pick in January. It just took them a little longer to get there. And, you know, what, what Michigan did against UCLA was incredibly impressive, but what Georgia did, or uh, what Florida State did to Georgia and LSU is, is maybe just a little bit below that for me. And so I, I think that they're playing with momentum and they're playing for something bigger. And I, I think that all of that, um, you know, is playing very well for them right now and is, is a big part of why they're, they're six and they've won their last six games. So, so was your Florida State pick a sentimental pick because it was last year for Mike Martin? Or is there something that you saw with this team that you thought made them uh, a team capable of winning the national championship? I mean, there was definitely some sentimental aspect to it, for sure. Uh, there also was a, I try not to pick the number one team that we have in the preseason, because uh, even though I thought we had Vanderbilt number one, and I thought they were the best team in the country, but they just it just doesn't work out that that team wins Omaha very often. So sure. once I started looking for another team, I landed on Florida State, and um Right now, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it, but I wasn't feeling so good six weeks ago. I, I do really like the talent. It was young, and I knew it was going to take a while to come together. I just didn't think that it was going to take until the end of May. Teddy, you mentioned uh, we were talking about Mike Martin just a second ago. Who are the guys in college baseball history that, in your mind, you, you kind of put on the shelf next to Mike Martin? Given his success and his longevity at Florida State, I, I think he certainly des- deserves to be there. But who are the other guys that you kind of set right beside him as kind of the patriarchs of college baseball and the guys responsible for building the game to what it has become? Yeah, I mean, the the two that come to mind immediately are Skip Bertman and, and Augie Garrido, and I don't think anyone can really uh, – and I guess Rod Dado should should be right there too. I don't think those three are particularly arguable. Um, yeah. When you look at how many national titles uh, they all have that – Garrido had the all-time wins record until last year, uh, and and when you talk about building college baseball, especially for um, for what what Skip did, and Augie played a big role in that too, just building um, Fullerton into a dynasty, and and then getting Texas back on its feet, and then you can talk about several others. Um, you know, 
people point to Ron Frazier a lot at Miami, or you can look at uh, Jerry Kindle at, at, at Arizona, or uh, you know several other guys. But but for me, I think uh, you know I, I would I would pretty instantly go to to Dado, Skip, and and uh, Augie. Given his lack of a national championship, does Ron Polk deserve to be in that group? Yeah, so that's where it gets complicated. And I know that people down in the state of Mississippi are like probably screaming at me right now for not having Polk in there just instantly. Uh, and I think that the lack of the national championship is uh, a little it, – it, it's, it's different than the rest of them. And, and I know 11 doesn't have one either, but he's won more games than anyone in the history of any NCAA sport. So, you know, I, Polk – kind of misses the cut for those that group for me but it's just and like i i think that you know there are several guys like that you know pat casey's right there probably with his three national titles and yeah. um mark marquest with his 1500 wins and there are a lot of really good coaches in, in the history of the sport and, and ron polk is certainly one of them and what he did to build that program to what he did at georgia what he did for the sec as a whole uh is definitely significant and, and should not be forgotten well, and maybe the reason that I would have him there is because I, I feel like he was kind of the modern architect of what the SEC has become. I mean, Mississippi State had it rolling before LSU decided to really commit to baseball and got it rolling under Skip Bertman. And I feel like, in a lot of ways, Ron Polk kind of spurred the progress of the SEC to this juggernaut that it's become. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely a reason why people call him the godfather of, of SEC baseball. And yeah. um, when you look around at, at the new duty noble field, there's a reason why Ron Polk's name is on it. And, you know, I, I think that that's all super significant. Um, it, it's just hard to, you know, really weigh things like that versus on-field success. And if you're going to choose to weigh, uh, you know, that kind of thing, uh, more heavily than I think that Polk and Ron Frazier both deserve a ton of credit for making college baseball into the show that it has become today. What Ron Frazier did at Miami, um, you know, the, the way he taught Skip Burton to what, what he needed to do and mm-hmm. um, just made Miami into that program. And, and, and then Ron Polk doing that and, and spurring the SEC on in, in Starkville. Th- those two contributions have, have really shaped the way college baseball looks today. I, I think that's completely fair to say. It's going to be a great show. Teddy, thanks as always for your time. Absolutely. Until, uh, until hey, Dad, I said, what's up? <laughs> I'll do it. He's there. You can tell him yourself. Oh, I know he's there. He's sitting like right in front of me. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks, Teddy. Thank you. Sports Talk Mississippi with you on this Friday. Good conversation with Teddy Cahill on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. You're dealing with people that you know, that you live with. Farm Bureau with offices and agents in all 82 counties in Mississippi. They offer great and affordable rates on home insurance and auto insurance. You can bundle your coverage to save it. Let me just tell you what the best part about dealing with Farm Bureau is. I am a Farm Bureau member, and if I've got a claim, if I've got something, a question, I pick up my cell phone and I call my agent, and he either answers or he immediately calls back. The customer service you get at Farm Bureau is absolutely second to none. I'm not saying that there aren't other good insurance providers out there. There there are. I'm just telling you that when I made the move to Farm Bureau, it's a move that I have never regretted even for a day. Uh, I'm, I'm getting good value, good rates, great coverage, 
and exceptional service. That's why I'm a member at Farm Bureau. It's not because they're a sponsor on the show, to be perfectly honest with you. It's because I think they got the best thing going in the uh, in the state of Mississippi. We're glad to have you along this afternoon. It is Sports Talk Mississippi. You can text the show 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. Fire, customer inspired. Uh, I got a text saying it said a lot of people might have picked Mississippi State to get to Omaha, but they were picked to finish sixth in the SEC West. That's a good point. By the coaches. By the coaches. Which is I really think, the SIDs, right? Or do is it different in baseball where the coaches actually do it? I would say most coaches have some input. What you had um, was Arkansas picked to win the West. I don't remember. No, to tell you the truth, maybe it was LSU picked to win the West and Ole Miss was second and Arkansas third. But to say, I mean, but Alabama was the only team that in the coaches' poll was picked behind Mississippi State, and that made no sense. It made no sense in February when that came out. I remember we looked at them and go, oh, hold on a second. This team went to Omaha a year ago. Returned damn near everybody. Basically every position player. And there were some question marks in the starting rotation, which felt really good about Ethan Small coming in, and he's been better than advertised. And there was a first-round draft pick in JT again that was on campus. Now, what nobody realized Mississippi State was going to get was the development and the evolution of Peyton Plumley throughout the course of the year. And that's kind of the, the bonus that they've gotten in the pitching staff. And if you go back to when we were talking about this team leading into the year in February, that was it. It was like, okay, you you know Ethan Small is going to be the one. You know JT Ginn's going to be the two. Who's the third starter? Are they just going to have to kind of piece it together? Well, maybe at times they just had to kind of piece it together. But Peyton Plumley turned into a really good third starter in the uh, in the SEC. Um, so, yeah, it, it did not make any sense at all. I lose Connor Pilkington off that team from a year ago. And... They lost what? They returned eight of nine starters. What was it? Uh, the second baseman. What was his name? Oh, I can see him. I just can't think of his name. Played with a broken hand a couple of years ago. Yeah. Anyway, you know who I'm talking about. Sports Talk Mississippi. Somebody did correct me that it was Ron Fraser at Miami that I was thinking about, not Jim Morris. It was Ron Fraser who was the longtime coach at Miami uh, that did so many good things. Now, Jim Morris went on to have pretty impressive career himself. Hunter Stovall. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Hunter Stovall. I can see him. I just couldn't come up with his name. There we go. Got a bunch of Stovalls popping up on the ceasefire text line as uh, as well. Um, Luke Alexander was back with his team, but then ended up as basically a undergraduate assistant. Yeah, and with all due respect, they didn't lose a whole lot of production from a year ago with him. No, no, not at all. Uh, not at all. Um, and you had guys that, you know, that did play in that spot. No, not necessarily in that spot. Um, I'd say Jordan Westberg's filled in quite nicely. Mississippi State and Auburn, game four of the opening weekend. They are the night game on Sunday following Vandy and Louisville. Get started tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock with Michigan and Texas Tech, then Arkansas and Florida State 
coming your way on Saturday night. Pretty good weekend of baseball. When we come back, we'll go to the Farm Bureau phone line. We'll check in with Brian Haydad, who is in Omaha. They made it. We've seen video evidence and picture evidence of it. We'll talk with Haydad coming up in uh, just a little bit. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio on this Friday. Two hours in the books, one to go. Into the 5 o'clock hour on Friday. It's my favorite phrase on this show. Welcome to the weekend. We're glad to have you along. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank online at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. If you've got land financing needs of any kind, Mississippi Land Bank can help. If you're a farmer with equipment needs, not a problem. Maybe you want to buy a new piece of property to add to the size of the farm. Maybe it's time to refinance an existing loan, or maybe you need production loans. All of those things right in the wheelhouse for Mississippi Land Bank. They've been financing and refinancing land for farmers and non-farmers alike in North Mississippi for over 100 years. MSLandBank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. Normally... This would be your college football fix, driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. I would encourage you to log on to buyfordnow.com and find out uh, really about the vehicle that you're most interested in. You can check out the cars, the trucks, the SUVs, and then don't stop there. Go visit your local Mississippi Ford dealer. Test drive the vehicle you're interested in. Check out the great incentives they've got. And if you are a military member or a first responder, there's extra special savings for you from now through the 4th of July only at your local Mississippi Ford dealers. I said normally it would be the college football fix. Today we'll call it the college baseball fix because we're a day away from the start of the College World Series. And Brian Haydad is in Omaha. Trip went okay yesterday, obviously. You guys made it safely. How are you, man? I'm great. I'll talk football if you want. I love it. But baseball is the key right now. Yeah, we, we can do that. In fact, I want to talk some Dak Prescott with you in a second, which also doesn't fall into the college football fix, but uh, some interesting quotes as uh, the Cowboys wrapped up minicamp yesterday from uh, from Dak Prescott. Um, what's going on in Omaha? Take take me through today. Uh, well, it's been, you know, actually opening day. We talked to Coach Lamonis amongst the uh, – it was an interesting press conference because at one point, you know, the day is there. There's four head coaches, and all four of them were tied to the MSU job at one point, obviously, with Lamotta's getting it. But Corbin's name was thrown out a couple times. Obviously, Dan McDonald's name was thrown out quite a bit. And obviously, Butch Thompson was a candidate. People wanted to come back, and there they all were, you know, representing their team for the College World Series. And a very, uh, it was just very friendly. You know, obviously, you know, the games haven't started yet, but McDonald and Lamotta's are our old friends. Uh, Butch Thompson's still very close to a lot of people in Mississippi State. Corbin and McDonald evidently are good friends as well. So it was it really just felt like four guys are sort of shooting the breeze more than having a press conference before their teams take the field for a national championship. I'm sure the intensity will ramp up tomorrow when the games get started. Was Corbin the weird guy of the bunch? No, I didn't. I didn't think any of them were. were, were it was, I did. There was one funny quote, Richard. And I tweeted it out that. McDonald asked, you know, obviously he's very close to Mike Bianco, and of course Lamonis is one of his best friends, and he said, is it okay to root for State and Ole Miss? And Lamonis just sort of smiled and shook his head. He's like, well, I do. I do, you know, I do both of that because of my relationships. So I thought that was just funny. You know, something maybe, maybe we can all learn a lesson from Dan McDonald. I don't know. Yeah. 
And, and it's real easy to say that when you're making your fifth trip to the College World Series in uh, 13 seasons, <laughs> uh, as is the case yeah. with Dan McDonald. Um, any anything? I, I mean, I know collegial and cordial and friendly and fun to watch, but any news that that kind of broke out of hearing from those four head coaches? No, uh, just you know, the basic stuff. They all had to list off their uh, their starting pitchers so that nobody would ask the question. The Bulls, of course, are going to go with Eaton Small, their race against Jack Owen for Auburn. Um, you know, Lamont has made it clear that his team is, after last season, where there really was sort of a happy-to-be-here kind of vibe a season ago because of the, the way the season had gone and the run to get them here, but not, not this year. The thing is, very much focused on winning a national championship. They they feel like they left something here last year and they want to get it back. So we'll see if they can do that. But he, I think Lamonis, yeah, he's just a really confident guy in the way he coaches. You know, he doesn't he doesn't really give you too much emotion. The word I use is chill to describe him a lot of times. You know, he just he's just sort of even keel, and he was very much that today. You know, but you can tell he believes in his team. Hey, Ed, you had a chance to uh, to talk to some players as well, right? Kind of what right before their practice on the field, is that right? Right after practice, yeah. Okay, after practice wrapped up, who'd you talk to? What'd you learn? Talk to Ethan Small uh, again. The confidence—that's the, the, going to be sort of the underlying theme for the next couple of days until you know the first game is played. Is fix his confidence. And he talked to Small, and he's like, "You know, been here, done this." But, not only has he been here and done this as far as playing in the college series, but he started game one a season ago. So for him, he said, it's just, it's not about what's out there. And he's just trying to, you know, gesture in terms of what the crowd and the external stuff. It's all about what's here and, and, and the focus and being, you know, looking at the plays and, and delivering your pitches. Same thing when I talked to, to Tanner. Wait, Allen, hold on a second. Ethan, Ethan Small started the first game last year, not Connor Pilkington? That's correct. I had forgotten that. What was the reasoning for that? Yeah. Small was pitching better at that point in the season. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's as simple as that. But talking to Allen and Foskey, it's sort of the same deal. That you know, they just they're just locked in right now. And you know, Foskey's been a guy who's been so consistent all year. And I asked him about that. You know, some of his teammates have had slumps, and he has. He says it's just being into my approach. You know, I try to do things like a professional. I try to you know stay locked in and stay focused. And, Tanner Allen the same way, you know, because he had slumped big time earlier in the year and has really turned it around. He said, look, we got in the cage with Coach Gautra and we figured it out. And instead of trying to lift the ball out, I'm trying to hit the ball low and hit it hard and a lot more base hits will come that way. So this team, you know, top to bottom in the order is hitting really well right now. And that's, you know, I wonder if they have to change their approach is the only thing that concerns me because as you saw this year, hitting it became more of a hitter's park to drive yeah, the no ball doubt. out of there. Here, here, it's not, you know, as Fox, you said, if you're trying to drive the ball out of here, you're going to end up hitting a lot of fly ball routes. You know, you got you got to really focus on keeping the ball low and hitting line drive. So we'll see if MSU's approach is successful uh, when they hit the field Sunday. Brian Haydad joining us on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. He is in Omaha getting set for Mississippi State and Auburn that's coming your way. Seven o'clock on Sunday night, so it's the fourth of the first, uh, the four first round games. Um, we were talking about this earlier and and didn't have the context. We had the the sound bite of Chris Lamonis talking about the outfield and the speed in the outfield, and I didn't know exactly what the question was uh, that that led to that. I did think it was interesting though, and, and I guess without the context, maybe this is a, a moot point. But if he was asked about how this ballpark played big and the outfield played big, the fact that he focused on defense 
as opposed to offense because a lot of times we hear oh big ballpark and we immediately go to well it's hard to hit home runs you got to hit balls on the ground you got to hit balls in the gap but he focused on speed in the outfield and the defense what was the context of that it was a question for all four coaches they all had an answer and it was basically what you're asking that the, the, the question was, you know, with the bigger ballpark, how concerned are you with your outfield defense? And then do you feel okay. like you have the kind of outfielders who can cover ground out there in this in that wide outfield? And that's what Lamonis was trying to get. He's like, he totally did, you know, with McNamee, Mangum, and, and Rowdy Jordan, especially those two guys, Jordan and Mangum. They've they, they got a lot of range. They can get, you know, from, from point A to point B pretty quickly. And McNamee's been real solid in the field as well. So that's what he was, he was trying to <laughs> I just got startled. I'm very sorry. Uh... <laughs> So I snuck up on you? Yes, one of one of our my cohorts here on the beat trying to have some fun with me. Well, I'd say they rattled you. It, it, it well, you I mean you turn around and somebody you know six inches from your face, you know, you don't expect that. Was he naked? Thank God, we're in the press box for God's sake. No. Oh, I, I didn't know that. I thought maybe you were in a hotel room. Well, Richard, last week, Hayden no. talked about breasts yeah. on the radio, so I mean, this isn't any worse That's than that. I did not say that. I oh. want to make that clear. Oh, he did. But that said, yeah, we're, we're still up here in the press box. I uh, just been, just wrapped up. Uh, well, that would have made it even box. more weird if somebody had startled you yeah. in the Jaybird it suit. It would have been more weird. You're right. You're right. About, you're not wrong. I don't even know what you were talking about at this point. <laughs> Outfield defense. Oh, yeah. Um, give me a story from the road. I, I told you before you left, you needed some good stories. You've been gone for like forty hours now. I want to make a public, want to make a public service announcement. I never want to hear again from anyone about how how Mississippi is like just you know this barren backwoods wasteland. Because once you get out of Memphis, until the time you get to Kansas City, there's nothing. There's literally nothing. There's no cell service. There's no gas stations. There's no food. There's nothing. If you run out of gas in the middle of Kansas. That's it for you. Wait, you, just you didn't go Kansas through Col- St. Louis and Columbia? No, we went uh, through Kansas City and then around. That's, that's the way Everett told us to go. Oh, uh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I thought you were fun. going to get yeah, Kansas we, City barbecue, though. We did. We stopped in Kansas City. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. Because there's a route that's where you can go... St. Louis, Columbia, and then on to Kansas City. You just took a more circuitous route to Kansas we went City? Springfield. We went like Springfield, uh, okay. and then I think it's I-44, and then headed to Kansas City that way. All right. You want to hang around for a couple of minutes, or I you need to run? No, I'm good. We can stick around if you want. You said you had something about Dak. I haven't heard anything. Uh, we, we can learn something together. Yeah, just some, uh, some interesting comments from uh, him about how he feels going into year three, or with three years in the books going into year four. I don't know segment, sure. Okay. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online at supertalk.fm with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online at supertalk.fm. Glad to have you along on this Friday, rolling into the weekend. We're talking a little, um, a little uh, Dak Prescott conversation uh, just a moment ago and this was the quote by the way Brian Haydad on the Farm Bureau phone line check out favorites.com and go with the home team he is in Omaha um, let's see here 
Prescott was asked about the comments that Jason Witten had made where he was he just talked glowingly about how Dak Prescott had been in the uh, the mini camps. Here's what Dak said. I'd say this is the best I've felt. Who knows? Is it three years under my belt or just seeing defenses a whole lot more clear, being quicker and faster in everything I want to do, having great teammates around me? Who really knows the answer? But I feel great, I feel confident, and my teammates do as well. Uh, John Kitten is the quarterback's coach in Dallas now, and he said that the theme has been footwork with Dak Prescott and said that Prescott can throw the ball through a fruit loop when his feet and shoulders are in the right spot. Prescott said, I'd start there, but as I said, just having three years under my belt, seeing the game the way I do now, seeing it the moment I break the huddle, the defense trying to get lined up and having a great idea what they're going to do, that's been one of the biggest standouts I can say mentally. I'm just seeing things a whole lot clearer. Quote from Dak Prescott. So he did... My guess is that if you're going into your fourth year in the league and your fourth year as a starter, then most quarterbacks would probably say something along those lines. Is there anything different about what Dak Prescott's saying right now than, you know, what Russell Wilson would have been saying going into year four, or Peyton Manning would have been saying going into year four, or Phillip Rivers would have been saying going into year four? I don't think so. I mean, that's kind of like. Said pretty standard comments for a quarterback at this point. But what it does say to me is that's a guy whose mindset is I'm going to go out and prove that I am worthy of this contract that everybody's throwing around that I'm going to get. Um, you know, that it, it, with Dak, statistically, he's been really good. And, uh, you know, from a winning standpoint, he's been to the playoffs twice in three years. But if I said name the top 10 quarterbacks in the NFL, not everybody's going to put Dak in there. Most people probably would. Yeah, so it sounds most would to me like a guy who's, who's yeah, he's who's ready to ascend. He's ready to take that step forward and, and be one of those top quarterbacks in the league and get that big contract and lead his team, you know, to a deep run in the playoffs. And you know, one thing with Dak that you know I've known from my year of covering him at Mississippi State is it was a challenge, and I think you know this is a Cowboys team that should contend in the NFC. They've got a lot of talent. I know the Eagles are still going to be really good, but the Cowboys are going to be right there with them and. If they're going to win, they need Dak Prescott to be an elite quarterback. If they want to win a Super Bowl, they definitely need that. So we'll see if Dak can do that in year four, but it sounds like the pieces are starting to fall into place for him a little bit. Borky was telling me a little while ago that he had seen a story where Dak's agent had floated out $34 million as the number, and Borky yeah. said, look, if they if they pay him that, they may not ever win a playoff game again. Which, yeah, you know, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But Borky engaged in hyperbole? Well, no, I'm, but but here's the point. Everybody's moving in the direction of paying $30 million a year for a quarterback if they've got a guy that can walk yeah. and chew gum. It's just kind of the market, and so if all the quarterbacks are making that, then aren't we leaving behind the idea that if you devote that much money to a quarterback, you can't make a playoff? Because if everybody's devoting that much money to quarterback, somebody's going to make the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, it looks like that's just the cost of doing business at this point. You know, there was a lot of talk. I remember a few years back when Mullen, you know, could sort of if you look at it from a college angle, was making four point five or whatever he was a year. And people were like, oh, he's never even won a, a championship, and, and that's just and that's just the price of having a coach in the SEC West at that point. That's how much it costs. You couldn't pay him two million dollars a year. You can't do things like that. 
And if as more and more teams shell out this kind of money for quarterbacks, Dak is a quarterback in the NFL. He's a good quarterback. You know, he put his team into the playoffs. So I mean, that's just going to be the price of poker for the, these teams right now. And you're right about that. That you know, teams are going to going to make the playoffs. A couple of teams this year are going to pay their co- their quarterback thirty plus million dollars and make the playoffs. So I don't know if it puts it to rest, and I certainly understand the other side of that where, you know, you can't spend as much on other pieces when you're spending that much on a quarterback. But teams are going to find a way to do it. And that's just, you know, that's part of the NFL, that teams will find ways around the salary cap and find ways to pay the players that they want to pay the money they want to pay them. It's also worth pointing out that not everybody's doing that. Like, there are oh, quarterbacks right. taking yeah, hometown right. discounts so they can build around them. Like, it's not a thing that everyone's doing. Well, who outside of Tom Brady is right. doing that? Breeze. Breeze is taking a home down discount. He's not getting paid thirty four million. Look at the quarterback contracts versus the guys in the playoffs versus the guys that aren't. They're either young guys or guys that have taken home down discounts. Do you think? Do you think golf is going to take a hometown discount when his time's up? If he were smart, he would to some degree, so they could have room to build around him because it's been proven to not be a recipe for success. Like, let's not act like everyone has done it. So Drew Brees is making $25 million a year. But to me, the difference, and I, I think you may have kind of hit on it just a second ago, is that Drew Brees is, he's made all of his money. I mean, what's he made? $200 million in the league? Yeah. Not everybody is Kobe Bryant, you know, as much as I love Kobe, but taking, you know, a $50 million contract for their last two years there and, and you know, Eliminating any chance of your team being able to sign other players. And Breeze is a guy that, like you said, he's made a tough fortune. He's got a ton of endorsement money. It's not like he's leaving money. Is he leaving money on the table? Sure. But is he really leaving money on the table? Eh, not really. I'm not saying Dak shouldn't try to get it. He should get as much money as is possible. That's the way this business works, particularly with non-guaranteed money in the NFL. I was just saying that not everyone's doing it. Well, but but the sure, problem no, with the Drew Breeze argument is in 2012 he made $40 million. And in what did 2016, the in he made $31 million. What did the Saints do in 2012? Uh, you'll have to tell me. They were bad. Interesting. They were not good. Interesting. Wait, 2012? He made $27 million yeah, last year, right? I don't think they were great in 2012. They were good in 11 and 13, though. Borky, does this argument make sense to you, or are you still on board with the, if you pay Dak Prescott that kind of money, you're not going to get the results you want? I mean, it makes sense, I guess, but I think Philadelphia made the same mistake. What has Carson Wentz done to, to command the kind of salary that he just got? What has he done? It, you just because well, he's on his you, way to being an MVP before he got hurt, and then his backup won the Super Bowl. Well, he got a good good backup then. Was he? Because everywhere else before that season, he was not good in the NFL, and he was a starter before. He's almost out of football. I mean, look, Carson Wentz is going to have one big pay year, like one huge pay year. In 2020, he's going to make $39 million. But the other years in this deal, he's going to be in the mid-25, like, you know, 24, 25, 26, which, Borky, is where you've said you think Dallas should end with Dak Prescott, right? I think so, because it does both things. It shows you're committed to a quarterback. It gives him a competitive salary in relation to his production, and it also allows you to go get another Amari Cooper. 
And it's not a Dak thing. Like, L.A. should do that with golf. Yes. Whoever else is next after that should do that with – I can't think – I'm blanking on who's next. Uh, maybe Mario. Everybody but Mahomes, yeah. basically. Yes. Mahomes, yeah. yeah. Carson Wentz just signed a four-year, $128 million contract. Now he's worth 170 by the way. $16.5 million uh, in the signing bonus and $107 million guaranteed. Holy cow. Yeah, for a guy that's perpetually injured – Hasn't completed a season yet outside of his rookie year, and his backup won a Super Bowl. And you're one injury away from that, that being your does that, legacy. Does that say to you then that does that say to you then that he should that Dak Prescott should be worth more? Dak's never been injured, taking his team to the playoffs twice. I don't know who Dallas's backup is, but I, I don't think he's going well, to the playoffs. If they if they want to get the biggest contract possible, that's the leverage they use. Absolutely, is hey, I my production is basically equal to Carson Wentz, and by the way, I don't miss seasons like he does. And I've been to the playoffs twice in three years. He has a lot of leverage, and he should try to get the money. I would just say that the Cowboys were smart. They wouldn't necessarily give the full 34, 35, whatever it is. Yeah, I, based on – look, if I'm Dak Prescott, and I, and I don't think anybody's arguing the other way on this, in three seasons in the NFL, he has made $2,747,943. And he's looking around and goes, Carson Wentz is making $19 million this year? And in 2020, he's making $39 million? Yeah, you're about to pay me. And you're going to pay me a lot of money. Blame for that. that's, not even, that's not even being selfish. That's just being smart. Mm-hmm. I don't think there so is a selfish. A, I think you should try to get as much money as possible in the NFL as you're a player because it's not guaranteed money. I don't think it's a selfish thing. You cannot disagree with that, Rippy. You are 100% right. Yeah. Well, and uh, you, you say it's not guaranteed money. It's not guaranteed outside of what's guaranteed in the contract, which is to me the thing that's so staggering about Carson Wentz's contract. 107 million of the 128 is guaranteed. That is some good negotiating. Even if you do make a little less money year in, year out, to get that much of it guaranteed, that's some good agenting. Hey, Dad, we'll talk to you on Monday. Thanks, man. How about it? Take it easy. Sports Talk, Mississippi. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.